The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. Man by the hand and led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them about the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. If this is your first time, please go with your child so we can get them checked in. Thank you, Karis. <clears throat> we'll be making reference to those verses as we go. Um, we've made it a long way into Mark. We finally reach the climax of this first section. Mark's divided in two, and basically Jesus has been working and showing them who he is, so that they would make it to this very confession. And then after he makes this confession, he's going to fill out what that means, what it means that he's the Christ. So it's this sense that they've got it. They can finally see, kind of. And this healing is weird. Jesus Jesus uses spittle. But I want you to watch very closely because there's an element in which when you follow Jesus, there are things about following him that will make sense to you and you will see, and yet he'll never cease to surprise you. And that's what's going on here. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with Jesus and for those of you who have been following for a long time, there's something in here for all of us. Let's pray now and ask God to bless our study of His Word. Lord, would You have mercy on me, a sinner? Open the eyes of our heart. We want to see You. Father, we ask that You would move powerfully by Your Holy Spirit this morning, that through Your Word preached and through Your Spirit 
that there are those that you would open their eyes for the very first time. Father, for those of us who have followed Jesus, our eyes do get blurry and cloudy and foggy. And we forget just who He is and just what that means. Would you open our eyes too? It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. This weekend, I was, a, I was the speaker for a retreat, a youth group retreat. Downtown Prez, which is from Greenville, South Carolina, did a mystery trip. And they came from Greenville, South Carolina on Friday through the snow. It's the perfect time for you to take 85 kids on the road is when it starts to snow. On the road, and they're wandering their way here to Chattanooga. I got here late Friday night, and I spoke with them on Saturday, not, Saturday morning early and Saturday night at 10 p.m. And I learned and remi- was reminded, I'm too old to speak at 10 p.m. But we had a blast. The mystery trip, if you've never heard of it, is basically they had to keep this secret from the kids. So they tell the kids you have this student ministry trip upcoming, and we're not going to tell you where they go, where we're going to go. And so they have to keep the secret. The youth pastor was telling me that they, they have to keep it quiet on campus because if it gets out, the kids will all tell each other. And so it's the secret. They don't know where they're going. They started the day going to Lookout Mountain and doing Rock City just 2,400 feet in the air. And then they ended the day after many other several events by going to Ruby Falls and ending in the Ruby Falls Caves, 1,100 feet below sea level. So these kids leaving Greenville, South Carolina, just have no idea how high they're going to go or how low they're going to go. It's a mystery. They didn't know where the trip was leading. It's a picture of what's happened here in Mark. These disciples have been following Jesus, but they had no idea how high he was going to take them. And they're just about to figure out how low it's going to get. They haven't fully understood. They don't fully understand yet. We're like that. We say we want to follow Jesus. We say we want to give our lives to Him and have Him transform us, but we have no idea the highs that we're going to experience. And you've known the lows that He's brought your way. What does it mean that He's the Christ? Is that a high for them or is that a low? See, we all struggle to see clearly when following Jesus. But because of who He is, We can put our trust in Him. How high and how low. Let's first look at the illustration, verses 21 through 26. Basically, Mark lines it up so that Jesus can use this real historical healing to prove a point. Look with me in 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to Him a blind man and begged Him to touch Him. And he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then he laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. He saw everything clearly and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. This is a strange text. 
Why does Jesus, Jesus use spittle with the man's eyes? Why doesn't it work the first time? It's like Jesus ran out of divinity juice and had to take a minute. No. The spittle is for this tactile experience. Jesus wants the man to understand who cannot see. He wants him to be able to feel what's happening. And as far as this halfway, partway healing, what's going on there? You see, remember, he's just healed, excuse me, he's just fed 5,000 men, which could have been 15 or 20,000 people. He's just done that. And at the end of that text, he opens up this man's ears so that he can hear. And then now with this last set, Mark lays out for us, he heals 4,000 people. And he opens up this man's eyes that he can see. And then Peter finally sees. Mark is laying out this idea that it takes a while to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. It takes a while to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. When I was growing up in eighth grade, there was a blind kid in my class. He wasn't 100% blind, but for all intents and purposes, he was blind. And so he carried this long cane in front of him, and he would wave the cane back and forth through the hall, and you had to be careful. You had to look up because he wasn't going to see you. You had to see him. You had to see his cane. And even though I was kind of a punk in middle school, we didn't mess with this kid. Even then, I could, I could understand that his life must be so much more complicated, so much more difficult than mine. And so even though we kept our distance instead of befriending him, we didn't pick on him because we understood just how hard his story was going to be. And that's now. Imagine so many years ago that this man is regularly brought and sat in the middle of the city so that he can get alms for the poor, so that people will walk by and see just how light his life is going to be difficult. It's not going to be like everybody else's. And so they sit him right in the middle and hope that he can make some money just by people's mercy. And he has these wonderful friends who get him to Jesus. They bring him a blind man and they beg him to touch him. And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes him by the hand and leads him out of the village. I want you to see that. Jesus could have right then and there spoke and opened the man's eyes. But instead, he takes him by the hand, this sense of compassion, not wanting to exploit him, not wanting to cause him to have anyone else staring at him. He wants to have this personal moment with the blind man and with his disciples. And he takes him by the hand. Can you imagine what those few minutes were? I mean, this is a village. It would have taken several minutes to get outside of town. But all of a sudden, the friends that your, your friends are buzzing about this guy who's in town who has these powers, and all of a sudden, you overhear your friends talking with this person. Can you help him? Can you, can you please give him back his sight? And wordlessly, Jesus takes you and reaches you and grabs you by the hand and begins to lead you. And it's this mix of hope and yet total terror that you're going to be disappointed again. And he leads you, and he's talking you through, and he's, he's walking you through. Move over here. Step here. He's guiding you with his voice. He's guiding you with his hand. There's this personal, merciful, gentle picture of Jesus. 
One commentator says, none of these things are necessary for the healing, the spittle, the long walk, but are necessary for us to understand the slow progression of engaging with Jesus. He takes the blind man away, in a few minutes he'll take the disciples away. And he'll tell both of them not to tell anyone. You see what's going on? You see the analogy that Jesus is making? Both don't fully see. The blind man can't fully see after the first healing. He just sees people that look like trees. And the crowds can't see who Jesus is. They think he's a prophet. And I have grace for you. If you don't know who Jesus is, if you haven't put your trust in him, if you can't see, that's okay. It's an important step in the progression of meeting Jesus is to say, I don't get it. I can't see. My life hasn't been affected the same way these other people's lives have been affected. I don't see it. And let me just encourage you, it's okay that you don't see it. Part of what we're going to talk about today is the miraculous touch of Jesus is the only way that this man can see. And it's the miraculous touch of the Holy Spirit that opens up our eyes. Otherwise, we can't see. It's okay that you can't see. You need God to move. But it's so important that you can be able to admit that, that your version of trying to make life make sense doesn't work. Your version of trying to figure out who this guy is on your own terms and what it means for you, it doesn't work. There's a sweet humility in saying, I can't see. But what about you who do see, who have put your trust in Jesus and you're so hard on yourself? I should know better. I should do better. I should pray better. I should read more. I should fight my lust more. I should fight my greed more. I should fight my pride more. This is taking too long. Exactly. Part of what the story is supposed to show you is the slow progression that takes over a life when it encounters Jesus. These guys followed him for three years and they finally get it right. Kind of. Jesus is gentle with the slow walk to encountering him. You should be gentle with yourself. And by all means, you should be gentle with others who are here just sniffing around, just, just wondering, just thinking, what, what might this mean for my life? What might this mean for me, for my family? It's okay if it takes time. healing of our lives is going to take a long time. Not just the healing of our, our vision about who Jesus is and who He's not. My son Cormac, three weeks ago, had broken his toe playing soccer in a backyard with no shoes on. And the doctor said it's going to take time to heal. First, wear the boot all day, in the evenings, and on the weekends. Then after two weeks, wear the boot all day. In the evening, you can take it off. But on the weekends, wear the boot. And then this week, wear the boot during the day. But in the evenings and on the weekends, you don't have to wear the boot. All the way until we get to a point where we don't need the boot anymore. Friends, it takes time to heal. 
Jesus understood that. It's okay for you to understand that too, that it takes a while to get it right, to see him for who he is, to see yourself for who he is. That's why this confession of Peter's, this is the illustration, it illustrates what Peter's about to experience. And we see this confession. This confession, we've been waiting all eight chapters of Mark, we've been waiting for someone to say it right. Some think he's Elijah, some think he's a prophet, some think he's John the Baptist come from the dead, some think he's a teacher. We've been waiting for eight chapters and Peter gets it right, finally. Look with me in verse 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and the others say Elijah, and of course others, one of the prophets, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. Did you see it? He heals this man's eyes partially and then fully, and he tells him, don't tell anybody. And in the very next, in the very, very next paragraph, he, he sees, he heals Peter's lack of understanding of who he is, and he tells him not to tell anybody. Peter is answering the question that's been begged for eight long chapters. Who is this guy? Remember Mark 1.1? The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of God as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Mark told us from the beginning, I'm going to tell you who this guy is, and then visits back eight chapters later and says, who is he? And somebody finally agrees with who Mark said at the beginning, he's the Christ. Or do you remember in Mark 4.41? Jesus is out on the boat with his disciples and there's rain and thunder and lightning and waves crashing over the boat. And the disciples were terrified and they wake Jesus up and they say, don't you care if we drown? And he says, hush. And it all stops immediately. Not like slows. It all stops. You remember what they said? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him, and they were more terrified. Who is this? Or maybe in Mark 6, when King Herod, King Herod had heard about the growing rumors of Jesus, he says this, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others say, he is Elijah, and still others claim he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Jesus makes a commotion wherever he goes. It's almost a direct quote here that he's Elijah or John the Baptist or like a prophet from old. That Jesus makes a commotion wherever he goes. But it was pointed out to me through some of the sermons I listened to and some of the commentaries I read, this is not the same answer to the question that we would hear now. If we were to go downtown and say, who is Jesus? You know what they'd say? He's a good man. He was a good moral teacher. Or he was a leader, a philosopher that helped people to think differently about their lives. It would sort of be this sense of, yes, he was, he was good and moral. He was a teacher. But people who were there, 
Even people who got it wrong gave him more credit than that. John Calvin says this, all the answers are those that actually respected Christ. All the answers are ones that actually expected Christ. Even, even the chief priests and the Pharisees knew that they either had to follow Him or to kill Him. But there was no condescending, oh yes, Jesus was a good man and a moral authority. And we have to be careful about that too. The people that were around Him knew there was something different about Him. They thought He was a prophet. One commentator said, when you were around Jesus, it smacked of the eternal. Let's not condescend and say that Jesus, yes, in that time, he was a historical good teacher or a good moral man. People knew better. There was something different about him. Even people that didn't fully understand him. And so Jesus takes the Elijah, the John the Baptist, the prophets of old, and he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks. Always Peter. Listen to me in verse 29 and 30. It says this, And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. Jesus is readying the boys for this next eight chapters that they have ahead of them. And he knows that Peter's been watching closely, that he's failed enough. He knows that Peter is, is dialed in and he says to him, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right, sort of. He gets it right, sort of. But I want you to see this too. That in all other world religions, they point you to a system or to a set of rules, a set of principles, a set of beliefs that if you follow these, this, this doctrine, if you follow this, these words, if you follow these rules, then you can have a place in our system. Jesus doesn't do that. He's constantly pointing you to himself. He doesn't point you to a system. He points you to himself. In other words, he's saying what you think about me determines everything. It's another reason why we can't think of him as a kind moral philosopher. He's either right about who he says he is, or he's a narcissist. But he says the answer to your life's problems is not these things over here, or this way of thinking, or this way of behaving. The answer to your life's problems is me. No, we dare not call him an interesting moral teacher. He either knew what he was talking about in reference to himself, or he's a narcissist. And we need to remember that. To keep returning to Him. Of course, there are helpful doctrines in Christianity and the Bible, and we'll teach them here regularly and faithfully. But the problem with your life isn't that you haven't learned that last trick or seen that last lesson or fully embraced the system. The problem with your life is that you need more Jesus. More of Him. Not a system, more of Him. And I urge you to remember that. Because the longer you follow Jesus, it will be as if you think, somehow we get into this, the longer I follow Jesus, the less I should need his attention. It's as if you've moved from the JV team to the varsity team, and now you don't need those same lessons anymore. Yes, yes, I started with Jesus, and now I need something else. 
And he says, friends, the longer you are in the system of Christianity, the more and more and more and more you will need me. You'll realize you weren't just a little bit of a mess. You're a huge mess. You didn't need a tiny, giving, loving Savior. You needed a Savior to come and lay down His life and bleed for you and die for you. The more you're in the system, the more you'll actually realize how much more Jesus that you need. But what about this anointed one? This anointed one. That's what he means when he says Christ. And I want you to see this. You are the Christ. See, Mark wanted us to see that he was the Christ. And now Peter finally says he's the Christ. What does Christ mean? We tend to think Christ is Jesus' last name. It's not. Christ means king. Christ means anointed one. So here's how it plays in the Old Testament. This is what Peter is referencing. Do you remember King David? Handsome guy with all the big brothers. David's the one who can kill lions and bears with his bare hands, and he ends up slaying Goliath. Before all that happens, Israel is in need of a king. And Samuel is there, and he says, wait, there's one more brother? Go get that brother. And listen to this. And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Remember that? Young David, this boy king, and he was anointed king. And then he goes on to have this powerful military career where they're going to say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. You see, David was going to become this militaristic leader, the one who, who would take back the land of Israel from the Philistines. Or maybe this in Psalm 2, it says this, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of, your, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's like Peter is saying, The Old Testament had David to take the land. And now you're the one, Jesus. You're the one who has shown up and there's something special about you. And now we can do it. Now we can fully do it. We can take back our land from Rome. We can become this important political people that we were always supposed to be. Or how about this in 2 Samuel 7? Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is God promising David a future heir. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And so Peter is trying to draw these things together that Jesus is somehow the new David, that Jesus is somehow this new Lord's anointed one. He would have had Daniel 7 in his mind. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. It's Jesus' favorite thing to call himself. 
He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom in that all peoples and nations and languages serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. One of the commentators said this in Peter's response. Finally, the disciples take a further step. Jesus is not just here announcing the kingdom. Jesus actually thinks he's the king. And so Peter gets it right. Kind of. Listen to how Matthew tells the same story. And I want you to remember this. Think about what's going on. Mark is Peter's version of the story. And Mark doesn't mention Jesus' compliments about Peter here. And Matthew is Matthew's version of the story. So listen to what Matthew says. After Peter's confession, Matthew says, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what's going on? Is it humility? Peter's telling Mark the story about how, oh, and one, one of us uh, said that he was the Christ. I, I can't remember which one of us it was. It may have been me. Was it me? I don't think so. I think Peter is glaringly aware of though he said the right words, what he meant by them was something so different than what Jesus meant. So different that he in fact can't even put to his version of Scripture the kind words that Jesus says. But I want you to see the kind words. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying the only reason that Peter got this right, the little bit right that it is, the only reason is because it was direct revelation from God. It was miraculous intervention. Now stay with me. Jesus has just healed a blind man, and it was the miraculous intervention of God, and so the blind man can see. And the Father reveals this, and it's the miraculous intervention. What He is saying is, when we say, I want to see, open my eyes, O Lord, I want to see, you can't actually open your eyes. Scarier than that, I can't actually open your eyes. That it's actually this direct, miraculous, divine miracle that takes place when the Holy Spirit allows someone to have their eyes opened, like in the text. A blind man, I once was blind, but now I see. A blind man opened their eyes and to actually encounter Jesus for who He is. And the reason that I tell you that is it should do two things for you. One, it should drive your compassion. When we see the people in our world and in our work and in our house and in our playtime, when we see those people who are living a certain way or loving a certain way or acting a certain way or talking a certain way, and we just cannot believe that they don't see it. It should drive you with compassion because they can't see it. They can't see it. It takes the divine revelation of the Holy Spirit for them to see it. It should fill you with compassion that you are calling on people to see something they cannot see on their own. It should fill you with compassion. It should also fill you with humility. When you look at the brokenness of the world, instead of wag your finger at it, you realize, but for the grace of God, 
that's me. The Holy Spirit didn't intervene, that's me. Full stop. It should drive you with compassion, it should fill you with humility, and it should cause you to pray. I've been thinking about this all weekend. It should cause you to pray. Here's why I've been thinking about it. I told you I was the, I was the speaker for this retreat and I preach at 9 in the morning, and I preach at 10 p.m., and there's 85 kids there, and they have no idea who I am. And the youth pastor says, you have 15 minutes. Oh, that should be easy enough. Two different 15-minute pockets for these 85, 6 through 12-year-olds to encounter the living God. That ought to do it. It's actually the burden and the beauty of the pulpit is that there's something spiritually miraculous that happens. That I have to stand there and somehow say in 15 minutes, if I am preaching God's Word by the power of God's Spirit, broken as I am, God makes blind people see. And that's what I want you to experience here, is that I want you to experience the fact that the Holy Spirit is actually having surgery in you and on you when you're here listening, that there's miraculous divine intervention. So it fills us with humility and it fills us with compassion and it ought to teach us to pray. Because like I said, you can't open people's eyes. I can't open people's eyes. And so part of why we're a praying church is because we know God has to move. We don't have any other tricks. God has to move, and He likes to move. He likes to move. He likes to rescue. He likes to bring salvation. He likes to bring healing. We just have to ask. But the reason that I think Peter, Peter leaves out the kind words of Jesus isn't out of some sense of humility it's because Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. Look with me in verse 31 and 32. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I want you to hear this too. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, Peter, you made it one full verse. Keller says that Dick Lucas said about this passage, this is when Peter pulls Jesus aside to explain to Jesus the Old Testament. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Why call Peter Satan? He doesn't actually believe that this is the great enemy from, from all, all the way back. It's that Peter is saying the same thing that the devil was saying when he was tempting Jesus. Do you remember that? When they're in the desert, the devil's saying, you can be famous, you can be a king, but just do it a different way than the cross. Do it from bowing down to me. Don't go the way of the cross. And Peter is thinking about David and David's military victories and thinking about Jesus and all that they have ahead of him. And he's saying, Jesus, we don't have time for a cross. 
We're going to win. We're not going to lose. You're not going to die. You're going to live. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter is trying to advocate for a Christ without a cross. A Christ without a cross. And honestly, we'll do the same. Next week, we're going to talk about having Christianity and about how the cross is central to it, not just a portion of it. The cross is central to it, but not just a portion of it. Jesus says, He must be killed. He must be killed. He's saying, Peter, you cannot really understand me and who I am outside of my death. And that goes for you too. Christian, and for those who are wondering, that goes for you too. You can't understand who Jesus is outside the context of His suffering and death. You don't have the full picture of Jesus until you consider His cross. Jesus wants you to know that He has come and that He must suffer so that He can rescue you. We see what a masterful Mark writer Mark is. This is Tim Keller. He says in the first half, he lulled us, the readers, into thinking that we're completely in the know. We're told in one one that Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, and we watch as these foolish disciples and obtuse public slowly stumble to the truth that we already know. But now, unexpectedly, we are shown that He is not at all the kind of Messiah we would ever expect. Listen to this. He came to give up power, to lose, to become weak, to serve, to suffer, and die. Our prejudices and worldly wisdom is now completely confounded and challenged. The gospel is that Jesus died and lost in order to win your salvation. He is a kind of king, Peter. But he's a kind of king who loses everything for the sake of his loved ones. So who is this Jesus? We'll end where we began. Who is this Jesus? He wants you to understand that there's something different about him. Different like Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets, and yet different like David, but different. That Jesus is the Christ, the coming one. When I was in seminary, they have these classes, and some of the classes, all of the people at the seminary in that class have to take. You know, it's like the, the general classes that everyone has to be in. And so they do these classes in the chapel because there's room for everybody. So there's like 85, 90 people in the room. And the professor who was giving the devotion for that day, they actually give you devotions in seminary before they teach you the Bible. So they're really trying to get in as much as they can. He talks about this passage and about how Jesus is the Christ and what that means. And does John the Baptist really get it? Does Peter really get it? What it means that Jesus is the Christ? And he said, so I want you all to do something. We're going to stand up one by one and we're going to say out loud so that everyone can hear you, I am not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And at first you're like, yeah, dude, we know. That's why we're here. That's sort of kind of the early stuff on. We know that, that we're not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. That's why we're here. And yet you would watch in a silent room as a person has to stand up and get to their feet and turn and look at 90 other faces and say, I am not the Christ. 
Jesus is the Christ. And inevitably, your voice cracks and gives out, and the strength of your voice is gone. Because it occurs to you, though you've been saying it in your head, that I am not the Christ, Jesus is the Christ. When you actually have to admit it to others, that's not really what you believe. You really believe that you have the solution to your own problems. You really believe that if you try harder for long enough, it'll get better. You really believe that Jesus is for some, but he's not here for you. And as I stood up, my voice gave out. I am not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. That's what Jesus is trying to get Peter to see. That all of Peter's solutions to Peter's own proposed problems aren't nearly good enough. Jesus is the Christ. And friends, for those of you who don't know Jesus and you're trying to make sense of your life without Him and it never seems to add all the way up, it's because Jesus is the Christ. And for those of you who have followed him for a long time, but you keep running back to the system, running back to the system, expecting something different, you need to embrace again, you are not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And he's come to suffer and die for you. Let's pray. Jesus, for those who need to be reminded of that, would you remind us by your Holy Spirit that of course we can't hold it together. Of course we can't self-improve. Of course we can't make progress. And we're not the Christ. Let us bask in the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And for those who are encountering it for the first time today, I, I can't open eyes. We can't open eyes. By your Holy Spirit, do what you love to do. To rescue. Would you open eyes this morning? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. By your Holy Spirit, do what you love to do. To rescue. Would you open eyes this morning? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.